Well, again, good morning. I want to welcome you to Apostles Online. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is David Cumbie. I'm the lead pastor. I want to invite everybody, if you would just stand wherever you are. I know we're scattered, but it's just a way to honor God's Word together. Would you stand as we read from the Gospel of John? This comes from chapter 14. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will not see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. These things I've spoken to you while I'm with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as people who need to be reminded of your love for us, And Lord, who need your truth revealed to us. And so, Holy Spirit, would you open um, this word? Lord, help us to understand it and to live in light of it. All for the glory of your name and for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when Langley and I were first married, uh, we moved uh, to Tanzania, lived there for a a few years. And as you can imagine, in Tanzania, I kind of stuck out. Uh, a little bit. Um, six foot tall, whiter than white guy. Um, as Michael Jordan once said about Larry Bird, that guy's so white, he's clear. I'm that white. And so Tanzanians have a word for people like me, and it's the word mzungu. So I'm going to teach you some Swahili. Mzungu. It's M-Z-U-N-G-U. And if you just Google mzungu, you would, you would see that means basically like European or foreigner. But in Swahili, the word mzungu actually literally translates as someone who is lost. It, it literally means someone who just wanders around in circles or spins in place. Uh, it was the word that uh, Tanzanian tribes would use to describe the first Europeans they saw because what they saw was people who were just wandering around, what we would call exploring, uh, but wandering around and seemed lost. It was people who clearly didn't fit. And in Tanzania, I was Mzungu, right? I was welcomed. I mean, the people of Tanzania are so hospitable. But it was clear that I didn't belong and that I was out of place. I was living there, but I wasn't from there. And they knew it, and I knew it, and it was obvious. And this summer, we are going through the letter of First Peter. And over and over and over again in the letter, Peter keeps telling us that as followers of Jesus, we are like Mzungu, right? He he calls us literally foreigners, aliens. We are living here in the world, but we are not from here. We, We know it, the world knows it, and it should be obvious. And so this week, we're we're in chapter two, and I invite you to grab your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter two, verse 11. This is what Peter says, and he picks up this idea Again, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He hammers again on this idea of identity, and he does it because he wants to make something very clear, and it's this, that to know how to live, we have to know who we are. Specifically, we have to know who we are in Christ. And you know, right now, living is hard. Life is difficult. I've talked with so many folks this week who, just in my conversation, and even you just hear in their voice, you can feel it um, and see it in their face. Uh, they just, I think we all just feel this fatigue, this, this exhaustion, this level of, of, of being tired and maybe even discouraged. And I think it has a lot to do with, with COVID, especially here in Houston, as, as things have kind of gone the wrong direction. I think around this question of race, so many of us just feel kind of this cloud, this fog of, of discouragement. And Peter, he's writing here a letter to people who are facing their own really difficult um, time. They, they're facing something a lot like what we're facing, and they're feeling a lot of similar things. And they're asking the question probably that we are, when are things going to get better? That's why Peter keeps coming back to this question of identity. Because to know how to live, we have to know who we are. You have to remember, he says, that you are foreigners and sojourners. You're not from here. This is not your home. It shouldn't feel like the place that we want to be forever. It's not um, our home. We're just passing through. We are truly sojourners. And, and Peter knows it's easy to start thinking about this place as our home. And, and I think that's maybe why this disruption of our life is good. It's good in this regard. That it's reminding us that this is not our home, that we should always feel some level of kind of discomfort and disconnect in this world as followers of Jesus. And so we're living here, but we're not from here. We are, we're different and we know it and, and the world should know it and it should be obvious. But Peter says, not only are we foreigners, he starts off by telling us that we are beloved. And that's not just some insignificant word of greeting. It's who we are. We are foreigners in this world, but we are also beloved, beloved not just by, by Peter, but by God. And it makes a huge difference, doesn't it? I mean, it's a huge difference when you feel out of sorts and out of place and things are hard to know that you're loved. It's a silly example, but, but I thought of the fact that this week Langley and I have had a really hard time getting a good night's sleep because two separate occasions, two of our kids have, have come and climbed in the bed with us in the middle of the night. And it's because they had really bad nightmares. And so they, they woke up and they were scared and they were kind of disoriented. And so what did they do? They came and they got in bed with us and they kicked us all night, which is why we didn't sleep. But it, it illustrates this reality that, that it makes a huge difference, right? When you feel scared, when you feel out of sorts to know that you're loved. And they needed to know that. And Peter says, when things are hard, you need to remember who you are. You're not just sojourners. You're those who are beloved. Jesus, as he was preparing to go to the cross, we just read these words in John chapter 14. He gathered his closest followers and he reminded them that things are going to get difficult. Things are going to be hard, but, but know that I'm with you and that I love you. Jesus wanted them to remember he gave his own life for them out of his love for them on the cross. And he gave them his Holy Spirit. And he said, if we believe in his name, he, he gives us the right to be called what? To be called children of God, those who are beloved of our Heavenly Father. 
And so it makes a huge difference when you feel scared, when you feel out of sorts, to know that you are loved. And in Christ, we are beloved. And so that's who we are. That's where Peter begins here. He says, this is who you are. You are beloved sojourners. And knowing that, Peter now turns the question to how do we then live? And Peter says there's two keys to living as beloved sojourners. And the first key, I would say, he says, is to fight hard. Uh, as beloved sojourners, living in a world that's not our home, we have to fight hard. In verse 11, he writes, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. I think when we hear the word abstain, we probably think immediately of sexual abstinence, right? But Peter isn't just talking about sexual behavior here. He's talking about an entire way of life. To abstain, to resist, to refuse, to take up practices and habits and ways of thinking that are rooted in the passions of the flesh. The flesh, that life that you had before Jesus when you were a slave to to kind of doing whatever you thought was right, your selfish desires. And so Peter says, don't don't go there. Uh, You're God's beloved now, and you're free to live according to to his good desires for your life. Now, in in our day, and in the church, there's a tendency to kind of downplay this this entire idea, uh, this idea of sin uh, in Scripture. And some of us, I know even right now, that makes us uncomfortable to even talk or hear the word sin. And, And as a result, there's a tendency to talk Uh, only about God's love. And and I understand that God's love is is critically important. We have to talk about love. We can only understand sin in the context of God's love. But to not talk about sin is actually unloving. Jesus, who was the most loving person to ever live, talked about sin a lot. And he talked about it because he knew sin was so dangerous. And why is it dangerous? Peter says here, it's dangerous because it wars against your soul. In the scriptures, your soul is is who you are. It's your whole self. And so this is a spiritual battle for your identity. Because we have a spiritual enemy, an enemy that wants to convince us of a lie. A lie that you are not who God says you are. That you are not God's beloved. That you are on your own. And so whatever you desire, whatever makes you feel good, just go with that. And that's why Peter starts with, with who we are. You are God's beloved. And so nothing you do, no sin you can commit, no evil that you indulge in can ever change that. Your status as beloved is secured by God's grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. But Peter wants to stress, sin is dangerous. Satan is waging a war against our soul. And it it sounds over the top to talk that way, but there is a war that's taking place against your soul. We we have a spiritual enemy who at every moment is working to cause us to stop believing that we are beloved. And he he does it through getting us to indulge in these, these passions, these desires that are actually out of line with who we are. You know, one of the problems in our culture and in the church right now is that we tend to be dismissive of certain sin. Because while the Bible calls something a sin, our culture and even the church may not want to treat it like a sin. Um, I know the Bible says it's wrong, for example. You may have heard this. I know the Bible says it wrong, but is it really? Maybe you've thought that yourself. Maybe you thought, how can it be wrong when so many people say it's not? When it seems like no one's getting hurt, when, when saying no or abstaining from something actually doesn't feel good or feel like it's the loving thing to do. 
And so we might be tempted to, to make light of or even dismiss what the Bible calls sin. Another problem, I think, is that we all have what I would call secret sin. Things that we think are maybe a big deal, um, because maybe we think we have it under control, or, or, or sin that we, we think no one notices, sins that we think aren't really hurting anybody else. It's just private. And, and I would imagine some of us are really struggling with some of these things right now, just given the circumstances. I imagine that some of us are struggling to cope with life right now, and, and maybe one glass uh, turns into three or four or more. I would imagine right now there's a real temptation just with all the, the, the division to, to blame, to harbor bitter, bitterness, to, to, to actually gossip about others. Maybe it's a temptation to, to fudge on finances just because the pressure is so great right now. Whatever it is that we're indulging in, this kind of hidden or secret sin, that what happens is we convince ourselves that it's okay because it's really not all that dangerous. So we, we kind of justify what we're doing. I remember reading an article a number of years ago that was written by a pastor who, who had lost everything. He, he lost his ministry, his wife, his family because of a secret sin. He'd been caught having multiple encounters with different prostitutes over, over a number of years. And what was alarming was that by all appearances, like to his church, to, to the outside world, he was this great guy and a good husband and a good father. But behind the scenes, this sin right, was waging war against his soul. And so he wrote this article, and at one point in the article, he said, he said this, he said, the problem with indulging my sinful desire is that it only led in one direction. You can't go back to a lower level and stay satisfied. You always want more. Lust doesn't satisfy, it only stirs up. I no longer wondered how deviance can get into child molesting or to masochism or to other abnormalities. Although such acts are incomprehensible to me, I remember well that where I ended up was also incomprehensible to me when I started. What began with lustful thoughts, playboys, and late-night porn binging was simply the starting point of a downward spiral of temptation, yielding, self-hatred, and despair. The good news is that Jesus always, always is ready to offer us forgiveness and, and healing and deliverance because we all are susceptible to sin. But Peter stresses here how deadly and dangerous sin can be to our souls. He says, abstain. He says, just don't go there because of this. There's, there's no little sins. There's no inconsequential sin. Sin is dangerous. And the danger, I think, comes from the fact that we're tempted to make this world our home. Again, we're tempted to forget who we are. And when we forget who we are as beloved sojourners, we can make light of certain sins and we can make light of our own sin. And so Peter's saying, we have to fight we have to fight. This is a war. We have to fight against giving in to the lies, against the desires that deny our identity in Christ. Fight against the sin that wages war against your soul. And so Peter's telling us there's these two keys to living as beloved sojourners. The first one is we have to fight, we have to fight for our soul, fight against our sin. And then the second thing is he encourages us to live well. I think that's the best way to put it, to live well. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what is Peter saying here? 
Well, first thing he's saying is keep your conduct, the way you live, keep it honorable. The message says live an exemplary life. Live well, in other words. The life that we have in Jesus, I think it's important to understand, it's not just about abstaining, right, from the bad. It's about enjoying the good. It's about experiencing the fullness of life with God. It's about a life with God that's, that's full of joy and marked by peace and grace and hope and generosity, a life of deep and meaningful relationships and community, a life with purpose and meaning. And that should be clear to the world by the way that we live. Second, he says that we're to live well among the Gentiles. Now, in Peter, that's shorthand for anyone who's not a follower of Jesus. Um, so including the people in, in their day and in our day as well who are against us, people who might reject us or shame us or persecute us because of our belief in Jesus. And then he says, um, it's so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. In other words, our life in God should show up in our everyday life, the words we use, the priorities we have, the way we use our time and money. It, it, it should help people see not that we're perfect, but that our, our life and what we say we believe actually line up. Why? It's because Peter says if that's happening, then they might see our lives and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation, um, what exactly is that? The day that God visits them could mean um, the day that Jesus returns at the end of all things. But it could also, and I think probably means, when God visits them personally. In other words, when, when he comes to them, that they might respond to his invitation to trust in and follow Jesus because they've seen what life with God looks like. And so to put all that together, Peter's saying that God wants us to use the goodness of our lives to draw people into life with him, which is amazing. We get to be a part of what God's doing to draw people into life with Jesus. And in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about what does that look like? What does that look like in our neighborhoods and our homes and in kind of the public sphere? Because that's where Peter's going to go next. But this morning, I just want to highlight two implications of what Peter has said here that I think are really helpful for us, especially right now with what we're, we're kind of facing in our cultural moment. And the first is this. It's that we need godly discernment in the face of complex social realities. We need godly discernment in the face of complex social realities. So think about what Peter is saying here. He's saying people who don't follow Jesus will actually look at the way that we're following Jesus and they'll see it as a good thing. They'll see some aspects of our life and call them good. And what that presupposes is that there's some point of overlap, right, between the Christian and the cultural values. In other words, Peter's saying that it's not that society is bad and the church is good. And he's not condemning all the values and the customs and saying abstain from culture itself. What he offers actually is a remarkable and I think really refreshing sensibility um, for the complexity of the world in which we actually live. Which means as followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility to be discerning and thoughtful sojourners in the world. We need to be prepared to affirm and exemplify the good in culture wherever we find it. And I mean wherever we find it. Uh, 
in whatever political party we find it, in whatever politician we find it, in whatever movement we find it, in whatever person we find good, we have the freedom in Christ to affirm it, that it is good. It also means that we need to be prepared to be misunderstood or even attacked at those points where we must live in conflict with the values of our culture. And right now, my concern is that there's too little discernment taking place in the church, that we oversimplify and that we tend to vilify. But like Peter exhorts us, we need to exercise wisdom. We need to, to, to walk in grace and we need to, to show courage as we seek to bear witness to Jesus in this cultural moment. And so that's the first implication, is that we need godly discernment in the face of complex social realities. And then the second implication is this, that we need to live out our faith among people who don't know Jesus and who don't like us. Uh, Living out our faith among is one of Peter's key points. God's strategy to reach the world with the good news of the kingdom is for his people to live among those who don't know Jesus. And that means even as we're being marginalized or rejected for following him, we we actually step into that space and we pursue relationships with those around us, even if they disagree with us or don't like us. And so it means that our lives should actually be visibly distinctive and attractive. That while our faith should never be a performance, neither is it private. I love what Rosaria Butterfield writes in her great book that the gospel comes with a house key. I highly recommend uh, you read it. But this is what she says. She says, living out our faith as followers of Jesus means knowing that my relationship with others must be as strong as my words. Having strong words and a weak relationship with your neighbor is actually violence. This is not about becoming people pleasers or aiming for relevance. It's about assuming a humble and sacrificial posture of service to others. It's about entering the spiritual battle for people's broken hearts and allowing the Spirit of God to work through us in spite of our limitations. It's about earning some street credibility for the gospel. I love that, earning street credibility for the gospel. And I simply want to ask us to consider that question in our own lives. Is my life earning street credit for the gospel? Is it lending credibility, in other words, to the words that I use and the claim that I have to be a follower of Jesus? Historian Rodney Stark um, describes how the early church took this call to, to live well and to be good, to be actors of good, to do good deeds, as Peter says in the world, seriously. And he says that, the church actually earned a reputation for its kindness to women. Without um, contraception, he says, women were often pressured into having abortions to avoid unwanted children. And it was significant um, because it was a cause of mortality among women in the early centuries. He goes on to say that Christian women were spared this. Uh, And then he says that pagans also routinely practiced infanticide especially of unwanted baby girls. And that Christians rejected this practice, and not only did they reject it, they would actually rescue abandoned orphans and bring them into their own families. And so kind of summing all this up, he he writes this, which I think is really profound. He says, Christians prospered in a culture in which people cared only for those of their own family and their own tribe. What following Jesus gave people was nothing less than their humanity. 
You know, right now our culture is increasingly divided and tribal. And what's happening in our society is it's robbing us of our humanity. And so there's a huge opportunity, I think, for us as followers of Jesus, as beloved sojourners, to live life in such a way that we help restore people's humanity, their dignity, that we should actually take up the cause of demonstrating God's love in tangible, practical ways that transcend tribalism and politics and ideology. And so I just want to encourage us to ask, uh, if God's calling us to this, what good deeds am I doing in my life, not for my own glory, but for God's glory? Good deeds that actually point people to Jesus and give street cred to the gospel. You know, it's not complicated. It's really just a matter of how can I love people? And so maybe for you, it begins with, with your neighbor, the person that lives right across the hall, right across the street. Just maybe when things calm down, at some point get better, just inviting them over for dinner to get to know them. Or maybe God is stirring something in your heart. There's the need you see out in the city. And for you to respond, for you to step into what, what God's stirring in you to do good in our city for God's glory. God has something for all of us in this respect. And some of us are, are doing some really amazing things in our city. And I just want to say, let's, let's do more. Let's step more fully into this and live in such a way that the people around us and the people in our city, when they look at our community, they look at our lives, they say, wow, I don't agree with those people, but I'm so grateful that they're a part of our community. Let's live, in other words, in a way that draws people to Jesus. So I want to encourage you um, as we close, just as hard as things get, remember, remember who you are, that you are a beloved sojourner called to fight hard against your sin and called to live well among those who don't know Christ. Heavenly Father, we pray those words this morning, that you would help us to become those people and that you would use our lives for your glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.